I used to do pricing in industry and at one point my CEO told me to increase the size of the pricing department fivefold, you know, which was a, a visionary thing for him to do in my modest opinion, but it really helped. Um, and I think when you look at the value associated with pricing and the number of people that are typically within pricing departments, the two do not align. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aliff. In this episode, we are joined by Tim Ham, CEO of Pearson Ham, who work collaboratively with PBAT businesses to help them create value through better pricing. Tim reveals the benefits for PBAT businesses of updating their pricing model and how CEOs can take control of their pricing strategy by recognizing bias, understanding their customers, and predicting the next move of their direct competition. Tim also concludes with his seven top tips for CEOs when implementing their own pricing strategies. Now, over to Sam and Tim. Welcome to our next episode of Map of the Maze. We're, we're joined today by Tim Ham of Pearson Ham, the pricing specialist. Hello, Tim. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. We we did a we did a webinar together in um, February. It was yeah, I think it was the second lockdown. On that webinar, there were about eighty people, which was great. But we thought the content was so good, we'd like to share it in the podcast, and uh, the podcast goes out to a much wider audience. And, what we're going to talk to talk to Tim about today is really the value of using pricing or the role that pricing can play in driving value creation in private equity-backed businesses. And uh, one of one of our very original founding members in Pep Talks, who's now retired and sending his boat around the world, how he used to describe pricing is: is you know businesses really have three ways of making money. They can they can sell more product or service. They can refine their cost base and increase their margin, or they can use pricing as a way of really driving value creation. And, and he would say, typically, it's it's an area that people come to last as business leaders rather than first. So I'm interested to get your perspective on that, why that's the case. And then secondly, as, as the first question, why that's the case, and secondly, why pricing makes such a big difference in a, in a private equity-backed business. So on the first question, Sam, why is pricing not given the attention that it, that it might be? I think there are two core reasons for this. One of them is, is around people often don't see the value that they're wasting from not optimising pricing. There's a lot of value often left on the table, but they're not able to observe it in the way that if you've got a problem with a supermarket queue it's very obvious because there's a lot of people standing there and you will address that we commonly see that companies have a tendency to underprice and customers do not alert them to that and it's only when they do some thorough analysis around price elasticities around perhaps market research that it becomes clear that they're underpricing and so it it requires a degree of investment of time and energy sometimes to identify the opportunity when in other areas that opportunity stares you in the face. I think that's one of the two reasons. And then I think the other reason is as a discipline 
it's not had the same focus traditionally uh, that some other elements of the, the, the kind of the business or marketing mix have. Pricing doesn't naturally and completely fit into marketing or sales or finance. It doesn't have a natural residence. And you know we are seeing increasingly that people are doing more pricing courses at business school. That mm. you know the whole subject of pricing consultancy now is much more developed. But if you went back 20 years, you know, there's no such thing as a pricing consultant. And so I think there's a sort of there's a maturity element in terms of people practicing it, and there's also a an element of it grabbing people's attention. Yeah. Your second question though was, you know, what's what's the attraction of doing pricing? You know, I feel very lucky to to have fallen into pricing because the upside from pricing is is very high because any moves you make to pricing typically go pretty much to the bottom line. And it is actually, generally speaking, much easier to drive improvements in performance from changing price than it is managing costs. And, that, and I think that comes back to the previous part is because to a great extent, people have got a laser eye on costs. They've been focused on it for a long, long time and they've done a lot more on that subject. Mm. And that pricing, because it is, has not been tapped as much as it could be, the latent opportunity is that much greater. Mm. Um, and, and that's why it's... Yeah, it's a great thing to pursue. And typically, typically, what sort of value might you deliver to a to a client that you're working with in terms of margin improvement? So it will, of course, vary. So I sort of say, that, you know, pricing is a neglected subject. It, that varies by market segment. You know, yeah. There are some segments where, um, in retail, for instance, it, it's got a lot more attention. It's it's had a lot more focus than perhaps some other sectors, which is. Uh, perhaps some software, for instance, we see the opportunities as being greater. Typically, though, we say sort of two to five percent improvement in um, margins are achievable, and by that I mean two to five percent of revenues. Uh, so, if you equate it in revenues, so if you've got a company that sells a hundred million, then the upside from pricing we believe is typically two to five million of increased profits. Increased profits, yeah, it's going straight, pretty much straight to the bottom line. Well, yeah, I mean, so when I say two to five percent, that reflects the fact that you might move price by more than that and have a volume impact. Sure. So, uh, so that is the bottom line impact. Yeah, and then if we equate that to EVs at exit, well, and then of and course it depends upon your multiple, but, but ten you, times that's a twenty to fifty percent multiple. Exactly. Percentage increase, which is incredible. Um, I, I suppose. Uh, it's it's not extraordinary that these uh, private equity-backed businesses, certainly in the sort of mid-market, first-time buyout private equity-backed companies, haven't faced into pricing before because um, you know they've grown very quickly. They're highly entrepreneurial. Yep. They've um, taken market-leading positions in their in their sectors, and it's it's something that they haven't necessarily had to really think about before. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to extend growth to the extent you need to in a private equity bad business, then it's it's a lever that you really should be pulling. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, no entrepreneur gets excited about their pricing. You know, they're, <laughs> they're excited about the fact they've got something of value that they can create lots of and build and grow. And, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, and indeed, we see the nature of the pricing question will vary as a function of a company and its 
position in its strategy and the extent to which it's got to the point where it's sort of feeling like the growth prospects are greater or lesser. Um, so for some private equity companies where the ambition is is very much about growth and they're perhaps at an earlier stage, then the work in pricing can more often not be more focused around commercial models. You know, how do I structure my products? What options do I give people? How do I charge? You know, some, some more strategic questions which are um, really quite important in terms of enabling growth, in terms of motivating people to buy things or not. Um, and it's the more mature, larger organisations where they have less growth prospects, where you naturally turn, you know, to your point about there's three levers I can pull. You know, if I'm a mature organisation, my growth lever is now looking less exciting. Mm -hmm. So I naturally think about these other levers. I might not think of it in those terms, but that's that's the reality of what people do. Mm. And so pricing then becomes more about what we describe as being price optimization, which is I have a more constrained environment. I've got my product structure defined, and I'm probably not going to change that. Yeah. But I would really like to make some better margins and that's where the sort of two to five percent comes in because that's about changing price levels to better reflect competitive price levels or price elasticities and that rate you know i say two to five percent and sort of as a throwaway comment it, it varies because some companies have pushed harder and thought more about pricing mm. some companies are in an environment where um it is very very competitive and what you can do on pricing is less um, and but part of the challenge there is often because companies are in competitive environments they do underestimate that you know they they do have a tendency to overestimate price elasticity mm -hmm. um, and and so sometimes you know, they don't appreciate what they're sitting on let's let's look at the private equity market in two segments i mean sort of simplifying it but let's let's look at the sort of first time buyouts those highly entrepreneurial businesses that are thinking about pricing for the first time and doing mm. it better. And then later we can talk about those businesses that maybe have been through two, three, four uh, transactions with private equity where the opportunities are, are more challenging. So yeah. you know, what, what advice would you give um, to me in terms of you know, how I should be approaching pricing in my value creation plan or my, my, my overall strategy? So some good initial steps are probably to question whether you truly understand your market context. Of course, you'll, you may well have lots of views on it, and, that, and if they are largely coming from the sales force, there is a danger that's a significant bias to that. So in a lot of work we do to help clients, our starting point is about building robust market assumptions. And sometimes that's about analysing historical data. Sometimes it's running pricing tests. Sometimes it's looking at competitive price levels. Very frequently, it's about doing a robust piece of market research to understand consumers or customers, how they make decisions, um, their awareness of price levels, their, their thinking about the buying process and how price fits within that. So. You know, there's, there is a, an area which is to say, do I properly understand my pricing context and the assumptions and the constraints that I'm in? Mm -hmm. There's also a question of, um, do I have sufficient resources on the subject of pricing? Um, 
I used to do pricing in industry and at one point my CEO told me to increase the size of the pricing department fivefold, <laughs> you know, which was a, a visionary thing for him to do in my modest opinion. But it really helped. Um, and I think when you look at the value associated with pricing and the number of people that are typically within pricing departments, the two do not align. Mm. So I would recommend people just invest capabilities and resource on the subject of pricing and give them space to think about the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third thing I think is a really important thing is to make sure the subject of pricing mm. is is elevated to the sort of senior senior levels of the organisation. You know, and we are great adv- great advocates, generally speaking, of having a monthly pricing forum where you talk about pricing performance, you talk about your pricing agenda, yeah. uh, and you use it to make sure that the subject of pricing is given the attention that it needs amongst the senior team. And very often it is a subject that should be discussed by a senior team because if you reduce it down to any one director, because pricing doesn't always nat- naturally fit in one area, no. you can't just say sales sort pricing out yeah. because they have a bias and they will end up underpricing. You can't say finance sort pricing out because they have great understanding of many aspects of the business, but they don't have some of the sort of more consumer or more customer-oriented elements of the pricing mix that you need. So what would you, what would you say that the CEO really needs to take control of that then? I mean, they need to be the person, if they haven't got the expertise, they need to be the person that sort of leads the charge in uh, learning and development within the, within the business around the subject of pricing and lead those conversations. Well, going back to your point about pricing being one of the three things you can do in terms of, I can do change volumes, I can change costs, I can change price. Fundamentally, as a CEO, you have to have a view of which one, which of those three you're going to pull and how hard and how big those opportunities are. So whilst the CEO may not be able to get into the detail of it, I think they fundamentally need to have Mm -hmm. a view about how hard they're going to pull the pricing lever. And you'd certainly hope that that's done with a, you know, a reasonable understanding of what the opportunities look like. Yeah, I suppose my point is that you don't, you, you know, a CEO shouldn't be thinking, I'm just going to sort of let finance lead this or let sales lead this. I've, I've got to lead this because there will be bias from those two disciplines and functions. Yes, and uh, and if you have a commercial function, which is in many ways the best place for the pricing place to sit, then of course there's a question about how much do you trust that that commercial person, both in terms of their capabilities and incentives. Um, so um, I think all all CEOs have to take a view of what's the team beneath me and the extent to which I can yeah. let it go. What does that piece of research look like, you know, just to sort of try and frame the market and understand, you know, fully understand the, uh, the opportunity that you have in terms of pricing? How long does a piece of, I know it's a bit like sort of how long is a piece of string, mm. but just tell us a bit more about that, that piece of work that needs to happen to okay. sort of research the situation. So sometimes it can be a qualitative piece of research and sometimes it's quantitative. Um, in, in some situations where you may not have a large number of customers and they may not be the type of customers who will just fill in an online survey, then qualitative interviews are the best way to go. Um, in some situations where you have a, a big customer database or big prospect database and a quantitative survey that you can send out um, emails to people and then field on some website is is very helpful. Um, 
we always find I mean when we're doing a piece of work with a client if we do a piece of research it just it's just a wonderful starting place because it tells us so much information and pricing is a difficult thing to, to do a piece of research on because you can't ask the straightforward question of how much would you pay for this partly because it you can't trust you'll get an honest answer uh, and partly because people struggle to, to give you a straightforward answer because you, it's a very abstract question and you're asking people to react something in a way that's different to how they would normally do because they'd normally look at choices of products and prices. So there are kind of techniques around conjoint analysis that, that try to address that where you give people those choices. But we also see that actually good market research, you try and come at the subject of pricing from various angles. So you know, we ask people about price awareness. You know, you ask them about how much does something cost, and from their accuracy, you deem the extent to which, you know, it, your price is going to be in, interpreted uh, with precision. And there's other questions around the decision-making process and the buying process. You know, what do they do? How do they go about choosing a product? What what are their needs, and how does price fit within it? So it's the triangulation of all these different reference points yeah. with respect to pricing that kind of build up a picture mm-hmm. um, and yes of course the conjoint analysis gives you an empirical view uh, but that needs to be qualified by these other elements. How, how long would a piece of work like this take you know for uh, for pep talks we've just gone through a management buyout we're looking at um, professionalizing the whole business as quickly as possible to, to realize our value creation plan if I'm going to really try and pull this pricing lever. Mm. Uh, how long is it going to take before I start seeing some some real gains from it? Is this something I need to be tackling at the early stages? I suppose is the question, rather than at the latter stages. Okay. Um, so I think I think two points there. One is, you know, if you do a piece of research, going back to the previous question, that's about five weeks from sort of the inception to having the survey defined as fielding it to mm-hmm. the analysis. I think three months is a kind of reasonable timescale for you to think of. I'm going to pull together my assumptions, I'm going to consider alternatives, I'm going to define what I want to do, I'm going to articulate that in such detail that I can think about implementing it and implement it. Mm-hmm. That, that of course varies uh, depending upon you know, the, the frequency of which you have renewals for your customer base or uh, the, 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 you know, the, ex- the frequency of which you can change prices. So in the restaurant industry, for instance, typically you change your menu twice a year, so it's about synchronising with that. Um, but in terms of when in the, the the kind of lifespan of owning a company, a PE house, should think about pricing, you know, we of course argue that it's a great thing to do from the start because there's so much value associated mm-hmm. with it. But I also recognise that there are so many other things on the agenda. There's a lot on that value creation plan in that first stage. Exactly. Isn't there? Exactly. So so they have to take a view of of relative priorities, and and we don't have the full picture of that. But I would what I would say is. You know, the best pieces of work we do um, are with clients where we work with them over a period of time. You know, and, and I think that's true for a lot of different areas of consultancy, and it's, it's true for pricing for sure, that um, you know, pricing is not about, we'll do a three-month project, we'll change our prices, that's it, it's done. Yeah. Uh, you know, pricing is a function of, of the business that requires yeah. ongoing work. Well, it's behavioural change, really, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, it's organisational behavioural change. It doesn't just happen overnight. You've got to sort of, it's habits and um, 
Yes, and that varies practice. a lot. That varies a lot by organisation. So in some organisations, you know, some retail organisations, for instance, and in, say sure. motor insurance and some market sectors, where you've essentially got a centralised pricing function. Yeah, and it's a, it's a it, to a great extent, it's about working out yeah, what the right at the sharp is. end, aren't they? So you can execute uh, and and make that transition faster. Mm. While many organisations, you know, service organisations, where the price is either agreed by a sales force or is actually delivered by somebody who's um, also doing the service, then you've got a much more complex situation. It is much more about hearts and minds. Um, uh, and and things like piloting are a much more appropriate way of getting to the right result. And it, patience becomes a more important quality in those situations because you, we do see, for instance, that if you in, in a situation where it's a service, piloting it with one group of people, allowing you to invest very heavily with that group of people to kind of coach them, support them, work with them, adapt your plan somewhat, mm. get it right. They then become wonderful champions for the rest of the organization. Yeah. Um, and, and in that situation, if you try and push through a price change really fast without consulting sufficiently, you'll find you don't get the benefits that, that, that you had in that board presentation that you all agreed looked like a super idea a few months before. Yeah. Okay, so what about those businesses that are further along the spectrum of growth and professional development? They've, they've done the sort of initial pricing reviews, they've got a pricing plan and strategy. How do you work with that sort of more mature business to, uh, to create value? What, what can they do or what should they be thinking about okay. as the next steps? So, and, and I think to your question, the companies that are at the very early stage, you know, a, a good part of it is about helping them shape the pricing agenda and then with specific elements of that. With organizations that are more sophisticated and more mature with respect to pricing, more often than not, the questions are you know, more focused, more specific. You know, we're, we're very happy with all these different elements of our pricing mm. solution or mix, but the, these, these two areas or this particular area is where we want some help. And th that can come in various forms. You know, so we do see some common themes there. One of them is around price optimization. So there are, you know, there's the skills around elasticity analysis and applying machine learning, the skills around market research, the skills around price testing, which often for a lot of people is quite disappointing because they haven't set their price test up in the right way. They haven't done the Monte Carlo analysis to simulate that price test to know actually what volumes that they truly need to change and to what scale in order that the effect swamps the noise rather than vice versa. There are some, there's some very, very refined skills around price optimization, which if you've got a large base of customers and you're looking to push that little bit of mm. uh, incremental margin out are well worth spending. So that's, you know, sometimes and most most companies do not have the scale of pricing department to be able to nurture those specialist skills. So that's one of the areas. Another area um, that we get into with some of the more sophisticated organisations around competitive pricing strategy, and we see some sort of biases here that a lot of companies have a lot of customer data. And it's very valid to take that data, analyze it, to interpret it, to derive your assumptions and then make price changes based upon that. The competitive situation can be more complex because historical data isn't necessarily so useful in predicting their next move. Hmm. And in fact, for a lot of companies, what the competitors choose to do 
is probably more important and a bigger question in terms of their success in the coming year with respect to the pricing than the, the customers. So um, we'll often work with clients in this space to help them better understand the competitor's potential moves, how they're likely to react to our clients. You know, so there's the, sort of the game theory, there's the interaction. And in, certainly in markets where you've got a greater concentration of competitors, that becomes that much more important. You know, so um, that's a subject which often because of the uncertainty associated with it, it's almost kind of neglected yeah. and ignored. Yeah. Um, and it, it often doesn't take a lot of time and energy, but it, it requires getting the right people in a room together who have an understanding of the competition to map these things out. So that, that's a sort of second area that yeah. we often see. Yeah. A third area is around commercial models. Uh, and in particular product packaging. Um, and we see a lot of opportunity for this around subscription pricing. So getting those packages right in order that it enables the renewals conversation and the acquisition conversation, enabling you to have sales conversations where it's not a sort of combative, well, I want a lower price, but it's a much more... Um, optimized conversation around helping the client to have the right product to reflect their price utility. Yeah. Um, there's also, and so the last area which is very connected to this is around behavioral science, that um, it's alarming in many ways how potent behavioral sciences and biases are mm. in terms of affecting people's decisions. And this is true not, not just in sort of B2C context, but B2B ones as well. You know, issues like framing and anchoring and personalization can dramatically affect people's choices. And that those sort of elements of behavioral chance, science are more potent in the subscription software, ongoing relationship um, markets where I have a choice of which products I might consume. Mm-hmm. And in those sort of circumstances, there you might be working with a client over a period of months, years, to, to make those sort of more sophisticated changes happen? Um, yes, I mean, when it comes to looking at a commercial model, um, th- this, is, this is probably the area of the pricing mix that most organisations struggle to land. And that's because when you change an aspect of your commercial model, it has so many different implications. It has implications about how you compare to your competition, um, it reflects on um, price levels, it reflects on organizational capabilities sometimes and systems, etc. So um, actually the issue is not that you need a long time to make a decision, it's more that you need a very methodical, well-structured process to map out those alternatives, mm-hmm. uh, to evaluate them and come to the right conclusions. And sometimes doing research to help define some of the assumptions to give you the confidence that your thinking is correct is important. So, you know, actually, if you change your commercial model, again, typically, there's sort of a three-month timescale is the type of timescale it takes to think it through, typically. Mm-hmm. But yes, your point about how do I then implement it? Sometimes implementing a new commercial model can be quite challenging because it can result in uh, people being at very different price levels or um, having to go through quite significant transitions from that old structure onto the new. And therefore, the, the process and thinking about implementation 
is really important mm-hmm. um, and yeah that can take quite a long time and now for a quick pep talks update before we return to our podcast with tim ham Here at Pep Talks, we know that a CEO is only as good as their team, and yet management teams typically receive very little support to help them cope with the demands of private equity ownership. That's why we developed our Excellence Programme, a six-month course that takes a cohort of PE-backed leaders through a series of workshops, rapidly developing their understanding of the PE model, value creation methodologies, and exit process pitfalls. Armed with this knowledge, they are able to excel under PE ownership. Here are some thoughts from some Excellence Programme graduates. I think the Excellence Programme has just been brilliant in really giving me that end-to-end view and life cycle of what it's like to work for a private equity-backed organisation. What the course does is it gives you such a fundamental understanding where you can actually go into conversations with the private equity guys and with confidence. I feel like I'm inundated with advisors in terms of Brexit and COVID, but it's always quite generic. I think that PE viewpoint is really important and helpful. And then I think for me, as well as the content on the course, just meeting other people in a similar situation to bounce ideas about see what's going on in their businesses and what they're getting with their investors has been really invaluable for me. It's given me you know, so much more confidence in the boardroom. It's great for networking. And I would recommend the course to anybody in a management team with a company that's backed by private equity. If you would like more information on the Pep Talks Excellence Programme, then get in touch with us directly or email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. When you're engaged, are you engaged by the private equity firms? I'm sort of assuming that maybe the private equity firms have got it more firmly on their radar than perhaps the first time management buyout teams you know ultimately you're engaged by the business aren't you you're working you're working for the for the ceo and the management team to make these changes happen and create this value but is it is it true to say the private equity firms are the sort of first port of call i would say it's about 50 50 in terms of where that initial contact comes from Um, certainly at the smaller end of portfolio companies is more often not from the private equity owners, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the larger end, it's a good mix. Um, and we see, you know, we, we see that the two, you both need lots of communication. I mean, it's important that the, the portfolio company we work very closely with that they feel comfortable with us and they trust us. You know, and so on a day-to-day basis, you know, they are in effect our client. Yeah. Um, but it's also important that the, the PE company feel comfortable too. Um, I mean, fundamentally, the PE company's objectives and, and what gets us out of bed and what we're trying to achieve are pretty well aligned. Like they're all aligned, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, we don't we don't really have any issues but it it is as you might expect it's just important that there's lots of communication going on and and it's all the the most important thing is 
that we take the time to talk to the portfolio company and say, what do you want from this? What's yeah. important to you? Yeah. What are your issues? What success look like? Yeah. Um, and they, they, they have the chance to kind of get that sense of ownership because they are the ones who are going to make it work. I think it's sort of from a, from a CEO perspective who's just beginning to think about this they're probably being encouraged to think about it by their private equity partners. It's probably on the agenda, but not really being dealt with. You know, what should they be looking for? How should they be thinking about, right, how do I resource this? How do I engage with a third party? What does good look like? Because often they've, well, we've said it already, they haven't even looked at this area that, mm. that, that effectively in the past. When we look at pricing projects and you know, we talk to lots of people in the market and yeah, not every project is that's been done in the marketplace as successful as every portfolio company would like. Yeah. Um, and our diagnosis of that is, is generally it's not about ability, it's about motivation and commitment. So um, you know, we, we believe that uh, what's absolutely critical is that we care about our clients actually. And you know, there's a lot to do with pricing, this is in many ways is about good consulting. Um, that that we are committed to their success and um, that we will do what we need to do to make it successful. Mm. So you know, pricing is a is a, a very specialist discipline. But I would I would say, like other areas of of consulting, um, you know, you you in fact you probably need that discipline more than other areas because it's so specialised. But once you've got that, if you've got somebody who's got that, then. I think it's about understanding what's motivating them and, and feeling comfortable that, that they have the resources and commitment and, and motivation to make sure that you're going to get the right result from it. Okay, that's great. On our uh, webinar, we, we sort of concluded with you giving your sort of um, top tips to facing into um, pricing as a value creation lever. Should we just do those quickly? Should we just talk through those? Yeah. To conclude, I mean, where, where do you start? What's the, what's the first tip? I start with executive focus. Um, so it is really important, and the organisations that we see do it that do it well, there is a mandate from the top. There is focus from the top. Um, so I don't think this is something that the senior team can let go of. Yeah. It needs to be multidisciplinary. You need to involve all the key stakeholders and uh, get it on the agenda and be watching and talking about it. Yeah, it's it's like many things. You know, the level of commitment you put into it is, is going to be what you get from it. Okay. Next one. And the second one is respect the risk of bias. Uh, and by this, I mean most organisations will overestimate price elasticity and they will therefore underprice. Um, and this reflects that um, what customers do and don't say to you, you know, they will tell you when you're overpriced and underpriced. Uh, what they say, most importantly to the sales force, they will overemphasize the importance of price. And it takes an extremely independently minded salesperson not to be affected by that when it's done on a repeated basis. So most organizations will overestimate price sensitivity and will be underpricing. So just recognize that that's probably the case yeah um and and ask yourself whether that's a fair assertion it's a side anecdote i won't mention any names but he's a very experienced ceo ran ran um his business under private equity over 
two or three transactions and created a business in Australia. He felt that the Australian market wouldn't accept the price of the UK market because it wasn't as mature and as sophisticated, so he set a lower price. And about three years later, his number one competitor, no, he bought his number one competitor. And they said to him, why the bloody hell are you pricing so low? Mm. He said, well, what do you mean I'm pricing too low? And he said, well, you're, you're sort of pricing it 20% lower than us. And it's, you know, it's, it's, sort of, it's killed us. Uh, he had absolutely no idea, you know, and he'd been running that business and business had grown. It worked, it worked really well, but he could have been at 20, 25% yeah. higher price all the way through. Yes. He ended up buying the competitor, and you know they went on, went on, and you know to great things together. But he tells that story of just like that bias. He just mm. he thought it was a certain way, and it wasn't. And of course, if he'd got it the wrong, if it was the other way around, if he'd overestimated price sensitivity and he'd priced too high, he'd have got feedback about it. And he'd he would have known very, straight very away. Quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So, point number three. So, so then the next one kind of stems from that really, yeah. which is gather external insights. So do customer research or run price tests or do analysis that give you as much as you possibly can facts, which allow you then to take a less biased, more accurate view. Um, and this will give you the confidence. Often what we see is that clients have an instinct uh, that's absolutely spot on, but they lack the confidence to follow through on that instinct. And by building these assumptions, that gives you the confidence. Yeah. So even if you're not biased, you've got to have the confidence as well. Yeah. So the fourth one then is model choices. Um, the, you know, we talk about two to five percent, and this you know sounds exciting in the abstract, but when you actually then put these numbers down on paper, when you say here are choices, we can put prices up by this, or we can make these changes, it'll have this impact versus that impact. Then it, it makes it very much more real and it improves commitment. Um, and it, we invariably see that it gives people more, um, I wouldn't say confidence, commitment to pursue these pricing choices. So um, you know, taking the time to look at the alternatives, model them out, put the numbers down on paper and discuss them. Uh, will drive you to take more action. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the next one is, is make sure that you think of pricing in a strategic manner. You, the classic way that people think about pricing is it's about setting a, a number. And that is a course part of it, and that's the 2 to 5% bit. But we, we talk about pricing in sort of both strategic, which is about how do I define my commercial model, how do I structure my prices, and how do I communicate my value proposition, et cetera, to the, the kind of the middle ground, which is the optimization. And there's also the tactical end as well around Salesforce stuff. But the, this, the, the strategic bit sometimes is off the table on the agenda. Sixth one is recognize emotions. And this is true, you know, both for your customers and for your employees or your team. You know, behavioral biases apply in B2B. Uh, and they truly are pretty powerful. So recognize that and, and understand behavioral science and look at those elements and work out how you can use them in your pricing. Um, but, but equally, internally, people need to believe in it, in particularly in services. So there are, there are areas where people are in effect charging for the work that they're doing mm. and they, they, they have to feel comfortable with the price that they're charging. Yeah, um, and it will be uncomfortable initially, won't it, as an idea? Yeah, uh, and sales teams too. I mean, sales teams, they're not, 
lying when they think the market's price sensitive. They're reflecting what they truly believe. Um, so you, you, you really need to take the time to, to recognise that getting people into the right mental space internally and using behavioural bias is externally important. And that's because there's the science to pricing, but you're dealing with real people on either side yeah. uh, who have feelings and biases. So you're going to need your champions. You you will work with a client and um, get the executive and the senior team on board, but ultimately you need the champions in the business to really believe in this. Yeah, and how we work with the junior people is as important as how we work with the senior people. It's not about a board presentation that looks super. Yeah. That's part of it. That's yeah. absolutely part of it. But you've got to get everyone comfortable and committed, and that's about taking the time with junior people too. Yeah, great. Last one. So the last one is don't declare victory too soon. Um, and it's connected to this previous one. You know, implementation is everything. It, it is the bit that can be neglected in consulting because you know, consultants get excited about ideas uh, and they value themselves because they're bright. You know, but that's lovely. But what, you, what people really need is impact and value. Mm. Um, and so... You know, recognise the challenges around the emotions, plan this out, employ tactics, stay focused, monitor it and keep pushing until you've seen the value realised. Yeah. Be disciplined as you would be in... It's the less exciting in a sale, organic sales growth plan yeah. or, you know, a cost restructuring plan. You've got to be super disciplined in how you get it yeah. into the business. Yeah, and if you've got the ethos of, I care about getting the outcome, you will do this. Yeah. You must do this. Well, Tim, that's been great. Thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at our conference, I think, in about a month's time. Thanks to Tim Ham and Pearson Ham for sharing their pricing insights. If you'd be interested in connecting with Tim or learning more about how Pearson Ham could help your business, Get in touch with us directly or email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. That's info at pep-talks.co.uk.